Yes, you, you lucky sausage. You found the Talk Marketing Show, where the League of Marvelous Marketeers give up everything you need to be more successful in your business. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, Martin Henley, this is the Effective Marketing YouTube channel. And if you've spent a second here, you will know that I am on a mission to give you everything you need to be successful in your business through this channel. So historically, I would have told you everything I know, everything you need to be successful is sales and marketing. But we are taking a slight detour today, I think, because we are talking to a finance person, because the other thing you need to be successful in your business is money. And I wish I'd known that when I started my business. So today's guest has finance experience going back to 2000, including 15 years at KPMG. She founded her own business, Spark Consultancy, in 2017. She is involved in a number of non-exec advisory and mentorship roles, including startup mentor and mentor at the Royal Academy of Engineering. She is author of the book, Investor Ready, and she speaks about startup investment and creating corporate governance structures that support accelerated growth. Now, we might be interested in both of those, but I think what I'm most interested in today is the startup investment. Now, today's guest was thrown under the bus by um, Keto Makwana, who actually employs her as a non-exec in one of his businesses, 77. So I don't think there is any better recommendation than that, than somebody that you actually employ. Today's guest is Julie Barber. Good Hello. afternoon, Julie. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Refreshed after a, a nice Easter weekend away. So. Fantastic. And you've had a little spring clean of the office today already, so that's, you know, exactly. you're achieving today. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So thank you so much for being here. I'm really interested to have this conversation with you today because I, when I started my business in 2005, I thought my energy and my wit were going to be enough to see me through. But Lord, I wish I'd had some money to invest in my business. Um, so I've never known anything about what it is that you do. So I'm really, really interested and excited to have this conversation with you today. Mm. I normally ask people if, if there's something quirky I can say about them in the introduction but I already had three pages on you, so I didn't ask you that. Is there something quirky that people <laughs> don't know that might get them interested in you as a person? Quirky. Um, uh, I, I can, I've got a horse that I compete in dressage, um, uh, so uh, so I'm not always in an office. I'm often I'm often in yard boots and a big coat and dealing with um, silly silly dressage warm bloods that want to misbehave instead. Dressage is the weirdest of like horsey sports, isn't it? It's, you don't. It's not about going fast. It's not about going high or long. It's no. it's a, basically you're dancing on horses. Did you call it that? Is that Con, what you call it? Contr yeah, control and precision. Control Absolutely. And precision. So, yeah, and it and it's a lot about 
communication your ability to communicate with the horse with the smallest aid possible wow. um, as well so yeah it's a it's a mentally very interesting sport as well as physically yes wow okay well i think that qualifies you as quirky well done <laughs> people should be interested in you now i had a customer i can't remember his name who was into dressage he's in the crawley area and he's got very white hair i don't know how big the dressage world is is that enough for you to know no <laughs> there's know. thousands, of, thousands okay. and thousands of us that do dressage all over the country so well yeah. that's coming as news to me i would have i would have imagined there might be like maybe 20 of you tops okay cool <laughs> So, as you know, there is a format here. Um, it's a very loose kind of format. There's only five questions. So your special subject today is um, startup investment, startup funding. Um, maybe if it goes really well, you might come back in three or four or five or six months and you can talk to us about the um, corporate governance for accelerated growth because that's kind of more the marketing theme that we would normally be more interested in. Um, so the five questions then are, how are you qualified to talk to us about startup finance, startup investment? Um, who do you work with? How do you add value to their lives? What is your recommendation for people who want to get better at attracting startup investment or investment for their small business? What do you recommend people read? And who are you going to throw under the bus? Who can you introduce us to who might enjoy to have one of these conversations? So we'll start at the beginning. How are you qualified to talk to us about startup investment? Sure. So um, I guess originally um, I there's no there's no official qualifications for supporting companies in in fundraising um, as such. It's a it's a very niche area um, and it tends to come more from from your own business experience. But I spent 20 years in in financial services, did the full run between consultancy regulators and and banks um and through that did a lot of um strategic and and innovation work um and also pitching myself so i spent a lot of time pitching to corporate boards to get money out of them got over 20 million out of corporate boards for various projects and programs that i was leading um and uh, so I, I understand what it takes to give people the confidence to give you money. Um, and then through the innovation work that I was doing, uh, we would have quite a few startups coming in to pitch. So I was on the other side of the fence, on the investor side of the fence. We'd have startups coming to pitch to large corporates um, and, uh, and we'd be turning them down and sending them away because they weren't ready they didn't understand what it would take to um you know to engage with an investor they didn't understand what the investor would care about um so my frustration levels grew uh so when i started spark um uh four years ago originally we just started it as a, a as more corporate focused because that was my background but continuing to work with as continuing to have startups coming in and pitching for investment in various places, it became uh, an increasing frustration that I decided to act on. So I took all of that corporate knowledge and then applied it to the startup world. And we've now been working with startups and scale ups for the last two and a half years um, uh, with with 
about 70% of our clients going forward to to raise investment successfully and about 20% of those that you know uh, that haven't raised learning enough from working with us to understand that they've got some big things to fix so they're not raising because they're they're you know not worth investing in they've realized that they've got issues and they go off and fix those and then go back out and, and raise later on okay wow i've got so many questions now <laughs> so the first thing let me start writing things down because the first thing is like so quite often i'm not particularly interested in paper qualifications i'm not interested in certificates i'm not interested in I'm not really very interested or excited. And there's quite a tone of this going on in the world, I think. Like Seth Godin, the, the marketing guy, says, don't waste your time going to college. Gary Vaynerchuk says, don't waste your time going to college. And mm. um, I don't know if the time I spent at university was a waste of time. I, I studied um, politics and I kind of leant towards political philosophy, which is kind of like, I think now, like motivation, like how, how people have been motivated kind of forever. So it wasn't a complete waste of time. But I think there's things that they so that probably undermines everything I'm going to say now. This is such an important thing, like like having funding for your business is such an important thing. There should be some kind of qualification or certification or something. Do you know what I mean? So people know where to go at least and then when they've decided that they are going somewhere know how somebody might actually be mm. equipped to support them or not do you think that um i don't, I don't know about a, a certification something i would particularly like to see more though more of though is education in schools and colleges um around entrepreneurship and around raising investment to support entrepreneurship as well because typically what we see is founders come to us and say we're really good at what we do we know how to solve the problem that we set the company up to fix we know how to do that but we don't have that skill set around raising investment it's a completely empty area for us we're really nervous about it it feels like a giant step into the unknown and that's because it's an educational gap so it's never been tackled for them at you know in their in their basic schooling and unless you happen to have gone and done an economics or an entrepreneurship degree um then you won't have covered it either so it, it is a big knowledge gap for, for entrepreneurs for sure so i'd like to certainly see more education whether it's something you'd certify in i mean it's such a broad church and there's so many different opinions about how you should approach things I think it might be quite difficult to create a certification for founders, um, but for education, definitely. Yeah, even if there was some kind of chartership, like an accountancy chartership or something like that, where you can say, okay, at least these people are paying a subscription every year, so that, which means they have to behave themselves or else they won't get to carry this badge anymore. Something like yeah. that might be useful. Yeah, yeah I mean, de you know, definitely uh, on, you know, on the side that the, the I guess there's two sides to it, isn't there? There's the founders who want to go out and raise investment themselves. They just need education. Yes. Um, but, you know, the people like the people like me on this side of the bench, when we're, you know, helping people to prepare, um, 
there's not really any um, direct kind of regulation, if you like, of, you know, helping people to work on their business plans or helping them to work on their pitch decks. There's no thing that you can really belong to um, on that side of things, which it would also be good to see um, some improvements on. I mean, if you if you go further than we do, if you do things like, um, you know, actually arranging funding and, and that kind of thing, then of course you get regulated by the FCA. Um, but we don't step into that realm. So, so we're in a we're in a <laughs> little no man's land, if you like, um, where it's really just about expertise and, and credibility from that side of things. So, um, yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. So the second thing that I want to touch on then is that. See, I think it's a little bit like marketing. Like I think like you're talking about pitch depth. For me, this is a pitch, but the value proposition is different. The, the value proposition is about returns, all of those things. Mm. But I, th I like I'm making in my mind now. I'm making comparisons with marketing because, like you're saying, these founders don't know that they may not know that they need to, need money to run their businesses. Um, they don't know how to get that money necessarily, and it's a bit like that with marketing. Like people go into business because they make great donuts, and they don't actually, very rarely, actually twig. If they don't have customers, they don't have a business, you know, and if they don't do sales and marketing, then they won't have customers. So there yeah. are comparisons there. Definitely. I mean, we, we tend to find founders fall into one of two camps in a really broad generalization. They're either from a sales and marketing background and they've had a great idea, but now they're trying to find technical support to achieve that idea. So they're looking for the CTO type support and that's where one of their gaps is or they're from the CTO, the tech side, and they're so enveloped in the product um, that they don't know how to do the sales and marketing side either. So, so they've got a gap on the on the sales and marketing side. So, but all of them, whether they whether they land on the sales and marketing or the tech side, all of them uh, don't have experience in raising funding. So that's a gap for wherever you land. That seems yes. to be a gap for founders. Certainly first-time founders. Okay. I think there's a third category, which was me. I was just completely stupid. <laughs> I did, I'd worked in sales and marketing, so I decided I was going to run like a, a, a marketing company because I'd always worked in sales, and we'd always had all the target and none of the budget, and marketing had had all the budget and none of the target, I assume. And so I called it a marketing company. And then, But what I didn't realize is that you need money. To, I did realize you needed money. I didn't have very much. I did a personal development course, and they told us some something about the universe will provide. And the penny dropped. I had like three credit cards in my pocket that I'd never touched. I had like 15 grand's worth of credit. So the next day, I'm like, okay, I'm in business. I've got 15 grand. That will sustain me for six months. And off I went. And I'm not joking. It was a very special kind of torture for the nine years that I ran this company as 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 a, a, a like a, a proper business employing people doing things because I never had anything everything that came up was just like an enormous leap like employing one person employing another person needing an office needing a computer do you know what I mean and it was just it was like the long jump for the nine years that I ran this business properly I was just running and yeah. running and running and hopping and skipping and jumping and doing all these things all day every day 
because I was so stupid as to not realize, no, I wasn't so stupid. What I tell people about marketing is it's an investment of time, energy, and money in essentially winning customers. You know, that's, that's what you do in marketing. Mm. And if you haven't got any money, then it's going to take up more time and energy. And if you have got money, then you can invest your time and energy in other parts of it. And I knew this, and I've told people this forever, and I lived this, but it's not what I did because I never had any money. Like basically the business I was a living, was a really poorly paid job for like nine years where I worked 14 hours a day. And yeah, so I'm an idiot. So I think you've got sales and marketing people, tech people and complete idiots. And I, I'm in the idiot camp for <laughs> sure. I, I think it's, I mean, it's, I think it, a lot of it comes down to environment though. So if you start your business in an environment where you are surrounded by, you know, SME business owners who've been going forever and, and they, you know, they started up a long time ago and they built gradually and they've, you know, all of that, that tends to be how you think you should grow a business. Whereas if you start a business within startup environment where you're surrounded by people who are going for equity investment and making giant leaps in revenue growth it's a very different um it's a very different mental approach it's a very different understanding of what's possible so i think a lot of it can can depend on where you come from as well um, and who you're surrounded by yes and this is this has been a culture change I don't know if it's been a culture change in the last 20 years, but it feels like I didn't know anything about it. So maybe it isn't a culture change, but where these tech startups now are on this track and it's all about seeding one, seeding two, seeding three, whatever the, 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 they go through the, that process. And it almost feels like that's their mission much more than even being a traditional business that finds and wins and keeps customers profitably. You know, they're yeah. much more about finding and winning and, and and keeping investment, I think. Well, yeah, because the majority of, um, the large majority of startups and particularly all of the startups that are raising equity investment are intending to build that company and then sell it within a set time frame. So, generally by the time at least by the time they're a couple of years old often from the day they start the business they know when they want to sell it by and so they're starting that business going we need to raise we know we'll need to raise this much and this much investment we want to get it to this revenue level and this profitability level and that is the point when we want to sell the business and so we know that we can walk away with this much money at the back of it. So they see it as a life-changing exercise in creating wealth um, by doing something that they happen to be really good at and it's pretty good fun along the way. Um, but it's a very contained exercise. They're not expecting to run this business for 20 or 30 years. Some might say, oh, we, you know, we want to take it to IPO and then still stay with the business for, you know, a longer period of time. But the large majority are looking for a trade sale at some point in the next few years. So they go into it with that mentality of we're going to raise equity and we, it's OK that we're raising equity because we'll be able to pay those investors back when we sell the company. And the investors are okay with that because they know that the time frame is relatively short. It's five to eight years. 
and they'll get a return on their investment, hopefully, providing the company doesn't go bust, et cetera, et cetera, on the way, because it is high risk. Yes. And is this a new culture or is this just something that I wasn't privy to previously? It's certainly ramped up over the last 20 years. The accessibility to funding has increased massively. Um, the the kind of digital approach to business has 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 made funding a lot more accessible. Um, in the old days, it was very um, it, it was very kind of who you know, and it was very closed doors, and there weren't the number of VC funds that there are now. Um, I mean, there's literally thousands of, of VC funds around the world now that are looking to invest money. Um, I think there's also a maturity in um, wealth holders around the world um, uh, who have realised that banks is not the best place to put your money quite often because the returns are so low. So they look for other opportunities. So they look at things like startup investment because the potential returns are much higher. It's also much riskier, but the returns are much higher. So because there are more people who want to invest in it that allows either more angel investors to invest directly into companies or more vc funds to set up and take that money and invest it for them you know on their behalf so all of that's changed in the last 20 years and you've also had the um the revolution of crowdfunding as well which you know never previously existed at all and has has gradually you know come up and gained credibility and become a route for equity fundraising as well as just um, reward or donation based fundraising. So there has been a big change in, in the landscape. Um, and, and now some of the time, you know, you used to spend time with founders going equity, equity, like before I started, I guess, you, you'd spend time with founders going equity investment is possible. Now you spend time with founders going equity isn't the only route because it's so ingrained now in startup founders. So oh, we must raise equity investment to grow the company. Well, not necessarily. Some companies can just use debt. Some companies can use completely different means to grow the company quickly. So equity isn't the only route. And it's really important to appreciate that. OK. And are you getting involved in other routes? Are you getting involved in crowdfunding, those kinds of things? I mean, we do, you know, if we think, I mean, crowdfunding can still be can still be equity, but we do point people in the direction of crowdfunding where we think their company um, would suit crowdfunding. Um, you know, if you've got um, a very easy to understand product or service, um, particularly that is a, a B2C type product or service as well, that, that people can buy and use themselves, they can touch and feel it. Um, that tends to do quite well on crowdfunding. If you've got a very complex, deep tech, B2B proposition that you need a science degree to understand, it's probably not going to do all that well on crowdfunding because people don't understand what it is that you're trying to raise money for. So you've got to think about, is it the right route to go or not? Um, uh, and then, you know, on some things like, um, you know, you mentioned it at the start that I'm involved with 77 Ventures with, with Ketan. Um, through, through 77 Ventures, there's a real aim to, to direct people not just to equity, but also to, to debt and grant solutions that, 
that help them as well. So looking at a really blended approach to, to help founders find the money that they need. Okay, so it sounds, is there, are there more investments? It is, is this kind of investment more available than it has been previously? Definitely. You know, there's a lot of money in the market at the moment um, that it's not necessarily going to more companies at the moment, but those who are raising successfully are raising bigger amounts as well. Um, but when you, you know, if you look at, if you looked back, say, 20 years at the number of very small, very early stage companies, that were able to raise equity investment, the numbers would be tiny in comparison to the number that you see happening today. So it's definitely a growth industry, if you like, um, for, for raising equity investment. Okay, um, good. But you, you're also seeing more people starting their own businesses. So that's another driver for the growth of it because again, 20 years ago, you know, everyone kind of came out of school and went, I'm going to go and get a job because I've been told that's what I should do. I go and get a job. And very few people would start their own businesses. Whereas now the proportion of people coming out of school saying, I want to start my own business it, in some surveys is saying it's almost equal to those who want to get a job. So that's a massive transition. Um, yeah. So you've got more, pe more people coming in with more businesses being started, with more money being needed, more investors thinking it's a good idea to put money into startups as well. So um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty healthy, growing space at the moment. Cool. Well, that's good news. That's really good news. I saw a yeah. stat recently. I can't remember if it was has gone from two million small businesses twenty years ago to 6 million or from 4 million 20 years ago to 6 million. But it's definitely either trebled or gone up by 50% in that time. You're shaking your yeah. head. Do you know the, what the number is? Uh, I think it's the two to six. Um, so it's but, trebled in the uh, last 20 um, years. Yeah. It, you know, the, the, and particularly in the last two years, um, whenever you have some kind of major upheaval like we've had with with covid you see a huge amount of transition of of people deciding to start businesses um because they've been made redundant from roles uh from their traditional jobs and they've gone what shall i do instead i'm going to start a business so so you see big feed outs from from events like that so if you look back at the financial crash in 2008 um, some of the biggest startups uh, or some of the biggest companies in the world today come from exactly that period of time where where people went, we're going to do something different. So like Airbnb came out of the 2008 crash um, because the those events drove a change for the founders. Yeah, 100%. And I was saying that to this I kind of missed the boat. I'm not really involved anymore. I just talk to people about stuff now rather than actually doing it. But I was saying to people about this this particular crisis that we've just come through, hopefully, is that this is either the biggest the biggest opportunity you're ever going to have or it's the biggest mm -hmm. excuse you're ever going to have. You know, it's either one of those. It's not somewhere in the middle. Um, because in 2008, I was ready. I was like in my business. I was standing up and I was telling everyone, leading the charge. Um, but I'm not in that position anymore. Okay, so what we're interested in then 
But let's come from the other way because you brought it up. So the third thing that you said that triggered me was about businesses not being investor ready. They can't yes. enjoy getting that news. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's... Companies spend an awful lot of time making sure that they are customer ready, making sure that their products appeal to their customers, that they're able to cope with the customers that they bring on board and all of those sorts of things. And they spend an awful lot of time doing that. And what they often forget is that investors are another kind of customer. They're still someone who's going to give you money to put into your business, whether they're exchanging it, that money for equity or they're exchanging it for goods as a customer investors are still customers so you have to be able to attract those those investor customers you have to be able to make them aware of what you'll be able to achieve you have to be able to convince them of your credibility um you have to be able to you know answer their questions go through the legal process all of those things and if you can't then you're not investor ready you're not ready to go to market for investment in the same way that if you didn't do that work around your product or your service, you wouldn't be ready to go to market for your sales customers. Um, okay, cool. So this is the way that I can understand this. It seems to me like this is just a pitch, like a, a like a different value property. So to like, like you're talking about investor customers, I can understand it like this. So they will be looking for a certain value, like your regular customers are looking for a certain value. They buy this thing, they use this thing, it's good, they tell their mates, blah, blah, blah. An investor is looking for a different kind of value, which is assumedly, um, is assumedly a word? Did I just make a word? <laughs> which is supposedly a, a return on investment. They're making a much yeah. larger investment. You need much better credibility. So it's almost like you're marketing and selling on two fronts to the customer and to the investor. And Absolutely. I'm really and I'm really interested in this because it's because you said it. You said businesses are too busy doing the customer facing thing and not doing the investor thing. So my question is surely if they're looking for a return on investment that depends on the success of the business which depends on the, their success in finding winning, not finding, I'm not allowed to say finding because Barnaby tells me off, attracting, winning, keeping customers. You know, that should be the what success is. The more of that they do, the more sales there'll be, the more turnover, the more profit, the more return for the investors. Unless, which is what I suspect, is that that isn't necessarily the way you build value into a business for an investor, which is by serving your customers very well. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, investors want to see that you're making great progress in the market and that you're attracting customers and you're getting revenue and you're even, you know, hopefully getting profit. Um, uh, but for them to, you know, all that they can see from your from your um, sales, if you like, is they can see history and they can see a snapshot of now. So they can go today, that company is, is able to sell 100Ks worth of its product per year. 
and up until now it's kind of gradually grown what investors are buying into is not history or now they're buying into the future so if you're going to sell the future to someone you have to be able to paint a very clear picture of what that looks like so part of being investor ready is being able to sell the future of how the company will perform so to be able to do that you need to have a very clear business strategy about what you're trying to achieve and where you're going to go and what milestones you're going to hit when and you need to know what the financial model looks like for that how much is it going to cost to achieve that how much revenue are you going to get in each year on what assumptions what's credible what isn't you need to be able to show what the business plan is that says how are you going to achieve those milestones that you've stuck down in your strategic plan because otherwise why would we believe you could even achieve it in the first place if you don't know how you're going to do it so that's why it's slightly different it's not just the sales because that's just now and history it's the future that you're selling okay so this is in the most positive sense pure speculation on everyone's behalf yeah because, because i would say the less it's grounded in the now and the history the more speculative it is yeah i mean you, so you can you know particularly with very early stage companies that are raising investment when they've been going for six months there is no history there's nothing you can base it on it's completely speculative um uh but it doesn't mean that you can just make it up and write down any numbers you fancy you've still got to figure out what would make those numbers credible you know is there other evidence in the market that you can rely on that says excuse me companies of this type tend to perform like this companies with this kind of revenue model tend to bring on customers at this kind of rate so you can use evidence from within the market to help predict the future of the company um, once you've been running a while obviously you can say for instance um you know a client that we worked with recently said you know we want to put into our strategy that we will continue to double or triple revenue over the next five years because we've been going for four years already and that's exactly what we've done for that four years so we've already proven our ability to double or triple in each year so we want to continue on that journey so it's not inconceivable to say to an investor this company is capable of tripling revenue year on year because they've already proven that they can do it at a smaller scale. Yes. Okay, cool. Good. So it really is a pitch then. It really is just a pitch because, you know, all the time you're talking, I can't stop thinking about Dragon's Den and I hate that programme. I hate that program so much. Like with the rich people sitting with their little piles of money judging poor. It just it just does my head in. And it seems to me their idea of what is investable is just absurd. And then they just throw money at the, at the really cool person who walks in. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so for them, it has to be completely original. It has to be unduplicable. And it has to be unduplicable. Is that a word? Um, and then it has to be something else. There's no way any. So basically, it has to be brand new, and there's no way anyone can copy any of that. There mustn't be any competition. 
That's not what happens in the real world. Do you know what I mean? If no one is making money in your market right now, I tell mm. people that's not looking like a great market. You know, you might be Apple. You might have tens of thousands of people queuing up to, to come and buy your products and services every day. That's a great position to be in if you want to launch brand new products. Every other situation isn't particularly cool because from a marketing perspective, you're not marketing at that point. You're educating the world. Look, you yeah. have this problem and, and, and we have this solution. And that is really expensive marketing, I think. So definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, A, I think it, on Dragon's Den, you see a very small snapshot of the time that they spend with those people. They typically spend around two hours per, per pitch, actually hearing from the founders and digging into a lot more detail and then the producers have their day of cutting out the bits that sound really exciting and and what have you um the and of course it's incredibly hard um in a in a constantly evolving and innovating world to be completely original in anything um but having said that i think the um the thing that founders do have to be clear on is is how they're different and better so because there can be let's say you know there's there's a thousand marketing companies out there but why are you any different or better than the one next to you you know is it that your product is slightly better is it that you're niched into one particular market so you're an expert in that area um it, what what is it that makes you stand out from the crowd because if you're going to succeed to the extent that an investor is looking for you've got to be able to step out and be above the rest of your market so going into an empty market like you like you said can be really hard because you've got loads of education to do but if you're in a busier market then how do you stand out and be separate that doesn't mean you have to be completely original but it means that your take on it has to be original in some way. Um, and actually, you know, lots of the products that you'll see on Dragon's Den are not completely original. They're, you know, they're kids' clothing or their food, you know, sources for food or what have, there's always been sources for food. There's always been clothing for kids, but they have a unique and original way of approaching it whether it's around sustainability angle whether it's around bringing a new food culture um they're bringing something new within that space and that's what they're really looking for is that thing that will attract the market to you yes yeah, so that's like a marketing hook you see i have mm. an issue with like unique selling points i don't think there is there's seven billion of us there's nothing really unique anymore and I talk much more about value propositions because I don't, th because this is what I think about innovation is if you're going to sell an innovation, you have to market it first. You have to educate the market as to why they need it. And that mm. takes very deep product, uh, uh, pockets from a marketing perspective. So we don't have to talk about Dragon's Den anymore. But the question is, I really, really hate that. <laughs> I really hate that. Um, I had no idea. You see, the other thing, my frustration with that as a marketing person is, like, these businesses go on there. They don't seem to understand, but you might have answered this already, that this is a PR exercise. Like, you don't want these scumbags in your business with their piles of money. You've got 10 minutes on BBC One or BBC Two 
that is worth probably the money that you're asking for, you know, so, but people don't realize that opportunity. Um, what I want to know is how scientific a process is this investing in businesses? Because, so what I want to know probably is like the failure rates. Um, because I, because you do see this on Dragon's Den, like they're, they're grilling these poor people and making every effort to know what everything mm. costs and what they did in 1987 and what their actual margin and all these very specific, very precise questions that mm. people who are appearing on TV for the first and only time in their lives probably aren't going to remember. And then the dude walks in with dreadlocks and a guitar and they throw money at him. Do you know what I mean? It's, I mean, I understand that personality is the marketing hook. That's okay. But it does feel like, it does feel like a personality pitch. Like if you've got the personality, you maybe fare better than otherwise. I, it definitely helps. And um, particularly in, in early stage companies, the investors will always say that they invest in team first and business second. Um, so uh, someone had put some a, a mean thing on, on LinkedIn just the other day saying, I'd rather invest in the A team with the B idea than the B team with the A idea. Because it's about the ability of the team to attract um, customers, to attract other investors, to attract great talents come and work in their company. And that comes from the capability and the charisma of the team. Um, so that's always forefront, and then the business is secondary. Right. But then you are only investing in this team for five to eight years, and you're expecting yeah. the band to split up. Yeah, exactly. So you're investing in their ability to move this vehicle from A to B. That's what you're investing in. So you're not investing in them for the rest of their lives. You're investing in them in their abilities to say we can take this company from here to here that's right. what you want from them okay good right so of course we want to know what makes a business investor ready that's 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 what we're coming to but just mm. before we do that because you said i don't know about 15 minutes ago that the, the sales and marketing guy might have a, a great idea or the technical person might have developed this um, you know, this amazing product and their heads just buried in the product. I don't think either of those ways are great ways to develop products, personally. I think the best way to develop products is to understand the market and the needs and the size of the market and to develop to those needs. But that doesn't seem to go on as much as I think it should. I think it should be like a virtuous circle where you talk to the market, they tell you what they need, you produce the thing, they love it. They enjoy it so much. They come back every time they have another problem or another issue. And this is the way production mm. developed. But your the, the the situation you're describing depends on a unicorn product. I learned this from one of these interviews. They all want to be tech unicorns. So it depends on this unicorn product mm. that emerges from the, the, the brains of somebody technical and just finds you know huge markets and is hugely successful and, and all of those things is it a little bit like that i mean it can it can be so obviously like you said the ideal is that people you know understand issues in the market go out and talk to the market and then build based on what the market says and keep iterating 
from there. Um, but in reality, what you often find is that, you know, founders would have perhaps been in a certain industry for a while and there's a particular pain point that's pissed them off to the degree that they've decided to start a business to fix that pain point. So they feel that they know everything there is to know about that problem yeah. and they know how to fix it. So they're going to design the thing around how they would like to see it fixed. And when they've built it, then they'll go and ask some people if it's right, if what they've done does fix the problem for other people. Yes. So people can fall into this trap of being over-invested in the product and not stepping back enough to engage with the market um, when they're building it. Yeah, well, I have very painful experience of working in businesses where they came up with unicorn products that everybody hated and then they just blame it on sales and marketing because it's not selling. Do you know what I mean? That's probably the worst mm. example. So you've got to have that flexibility and that um, flexibility in your ego to take it to market and then hear what the market says and then evolve. I think maybe that's part of the personality. Right. So the big question, this is, well, maybe we can go to our question number two. So you've passed question number one. You are clearly qualified to talk to us about startup investment. Thank you for that. So question number two is who do you work with and how do you add value to their lives? So what is your, are they customers of yours or what, what is, the, how does that relationship work? Cause I can imagine it could get quite sure. creative. Yeah, so so when it comes to, I mean, you know, you've already kind of mentioned we do some other things like like governance and strategic planning, but when it comes to preparation for fundraising, um, we work with companies that are typically in their first five to six years of life. They're either raising at pre-seed, at seed level, or at Series A, which means they're raising somewhere between 100k and 10 to 20 million. Um, we only work with UK headquartered companies um, and we only work with founders who have um, either previously run another business or have had some kind of corporate career where they've proved that they can execute as well. So we're interested in people who've got execution ability, if you like, um, uh, as well. So, so that's a very clear profile that we've got of who we work with. Um, and then where we add we add value in in two different ways so either we're adding value um because the the founders are saying i know nothing about raising investment help i need a handhold through the entire process in which case then we're educating them helping them prepare the materials that they need to go out to raise investment or the second scenario is where we've perhaps got slightly more experienced founders who say I know a bit about raising investment, but I'm too busy running the company to prepare all of this stuff and we need to outsource some of it for help. So some of them will just come to us and say, can you help us prepare our, our investment materials? And so we add value in that way by being able to take on what they want to, to outsource. Okay, so can you explain, because I've never known, so it's pre-seed, seed... seed. And series A, yeah. So there's only three levels? No, those are the three levels that we work at. That's part of our niche that we focus on. So okay. so right, so pre-seed is you've got an idea, but you've not built a product yet and you've not got any revenue yet. 
Um, so you're really right at the beginning, but you can raise investment at that stage. Um, uh, there's less investors that invest at that stage, but you can. Next level is seed, where you've probably built a product, you've got it into the market in some way, shape or form. It could still be free at this point. You don't necessarily have revenue, but you have some kind of market traction where people are starting to use it and say that they like it. Um, uh, so you might be raising investment at seed um, and, and typically like these are really generalized buckets, but if you're raising at pre-seed, you might be raising up to about 250K if you're raising at the seed level because it's in the market and you've built the product, you're probably raising somewhere more between 250K to two, three million. Um, and then at series A, what you're saying is I've bumped along the bottom, I've built the product, I've learned, I've grown it a little bit, I've kind of come off the bottom line and now we're ready to put the foot on the accelerator because we've built a product that works, we've tested it in the market, um, we've got the back end ready of the of the business ready to scale as well so now we just need to push more money through it and that will cause the revenue to go straight up basically so so at series a where you're raising anywhere between kind of two and 20 million maybe more quite often more sometimes um then then what you're saying is give us lots of money to invest in something that has proved its ability to operate in the market to a certain extent and we can make it much bigger. So after Series A, um, and at Series A level as well, sorry, typically, like as a ballpark, investors are saying we're, we'd expect you to be at a million annual recurring revenue um, by the time you go for a Series A investment. Once you get past Series A, you can go Series B, C, D, E, F, up to about H or J, I think is the furthest I've heard. Um, you don't have to do any of those you could do just pre-seed and never take any more investment or you could do 10 rounds of investment um and then you might sell the company or you might go to to ipo but some of the um uh you know we work that everyone's heard of the you know the the co-working spaces i think they got up to um a series h or something like that in their fundraising efforts um, taking millions and billions more each time uh, to, because they needed to that money to, to grow the company at the scale and the pace that they were looking to achieve. Okay. Wow, you've opened a kind of can of worms there, I think. <laughs> Did you know you were opening that can of worms? <laughs> no, Did but let, let's explore. Okay, so I've just Googled WeWork Investment Disaster. So I had intent in the search. How WeWork went from 47 billion valuation to bankruptcy is the, the first result. Mm. I know the go why we, WeWork went wrong. So, wow. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about that if we've got time to talk about that. Be no, oh my God, I can't get it out of my head now. Right. So what? So there's styles of business famously that are more appropriate to investment than not. So, for example, this is you know what I've picked up from the ether. Service businesses typically not great investment vehicles because what happens is 
people decide to buy services from people they like and they like having around and so it's largely based on the, those relationships so if an investor comes in and those personalities go away then the company doesn't have the value that it had previously so they don't associate that value with they don't associate value with service businesses i don't know this is stuff somebody might have said in a chip shop when i was buying my chips one day <laughs> so i mean it again it, it really depends on how what kind of services those are so for instance if you look at the explosion at the moment in the aesthetics industry um where you know people are getting their their botox and their fillers and their dermaplaning and all of those kinds of things it's a service industry yes but there are companies that are successfully raising investment because what they've been able to do is take the, the McDonald's approach yeah. to aesthetics and say, we can set up a, um, a base here. We can open another branch here and it will have these roles within the branch. And this is exactly how we do each of the services. And, you know, the person who's going to that new branch in Hull has never heard of the founder in London and they don't care that they've never heard of them. They just want to go to the branch that's down the road because it's convenient. Um, so where service companies are able to productize what they do, then it can be investable as a service. Um, and a lot of the big tech companies that gain investment are um, often what's called software as a service companies. So where they're not reliant on a person, but they're using, you know, pure software as the service. So your zero accounting software, your Canva image design software, um, your monday.com project management, they're all software as a service. So they are services um, that are available in a productized way. Um, and then you can still have equity investment into real products like beer like brew dog you know has raised an awful lot of investment and and they make beer um so there's lots of pure product things that you can get investment into as well yes so i suppose it depends then on to the extent that you can productize your service so if you yeah. can create a cookie cutter experience like nobody goes to mcdonald's for the romance of it they go because they know exactly what they're going to get wherever they are in the world yeah it's the scalability of it. So can yes. we re can we repeat this successfully in multiple demographics or geographies? Yes. And I suppose anybody, any business that is providing a service at scale must have done that, you know, because they're yeah. not getting the founder's attention. They're not. Okay, yeah, good. Exactly. So that answers that question. But still, I want to say the service businesses are less investable than product businesses um if if they are personal service businesses um then they're trickier if they are software service businesses then they're totally way more investable than a product because yes. you know if you if you look at canva for instance um or uh, survey monkey um their ability to expand globally is unlimited yes. because all they require is the internet they don't have to set up bricks and mortar bases or anything like that 
so it's less about um it's less about kind of product or service it's more about um ability to move geographically quickly so if you don't have to set up bricks and mortar bases to work from it's a lot cheaper and it's a lot faster to be able to grow really quick yes um whereas if if you've got to uh, you know if you've got to open another shop and another shop and another shop it's slower and more expensive so those you know bricks and mortar attracts less investment than tech enabled digitally um digitally mobile companies okay cool and so software is perfect there's no supply chain there's no storage there's no um you know there's no stock there's you just literally photocopy it and send it is what you do yeah cool that's that's the most that's the most scalable for sure is is software yes and are there people who I'm getting a real sense at the moment that there's too many people with too much money, um, like with cryptocurrencies and NFTs and stuff. It's like, you know, if you're buying an NFT, you are buying zeros and ones is what you're buying. And that, that's lovely. I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm happy for them to do that. But um, are there investors who are more interested in one thing rather than another thing? You know, are they more interested in, I don't know, startup service companies or startup retail companies or startup software companies or is that the way yeah, it works? absolutely absolutely so investors investors will will um specialize in particular areas that they have um their own expertise in um so if you look at um you know some of the biggest angel investors so um chris adelsback for instance is a, a he has a, a financial services company um, he sold it for 500 million um, a few years ago, and now he just invests in financial technology companies. That's all he invests in is fintech because it's what he knows, it's what he understands. He invests in fintech. That's that's it. And most angel investors will tend to invest within quite a narrow remit because it's where they know that they understand what they're buying into, and it's where they know that they can also add value themselves. Um, yeah. Okay, good. So we're getting a sense of what it is. So basically, what you need to do is build a really convincing forecast. Is what is is what investors want to see, and have yeah. some personalities, and then you're winning. Is that is it as simple as that? <laughs> At a very high level, yeah, at a very high level, you know, having the great having the great team, understanding what the gaps are and how to fill them, having the really credible forecast, you know, something that we say to our founders is your forecast doesn't have to be right. It has to be credible. The universe isn't going to read your playbook and go, oh, we must make sure that revenue happens exactly as you predicted it five years ago. There's not one company in the world that can look back and say, we hit to the dollar, to the pound, exactly what we predicted in our financial model. It just doesn't happen. But it's not about it being perfectly right. It's about it being really credible. Um, because that gives investors confidence, again, in the team. The team have the ability to create credible forecasts for this company and to understand what it could achieve. So if you've got someone saying, 
oh we've uh, you know we've created a new a new brand of dog food and it's going to do 500 million in its first three years most likely they're going to be met with i don't think so because you know it's a it's a crowded market it's not a very scalable easily scalable business because of manufacture and supply and all of those things so an investor looking at that financial model for that business would be going no whereas you know if it's someone saying well we've created um uh you know a new ability for um people working remotely to be able to communicate together and we could get to 120 million in three years hmm, possibly so it's about you know what's the credible possibility for this type of business in this excuse me in this market at this time yeah the, the only issue i have with that is that famously founders of businesses and business owners are marvelously optimistic when they think about what the future holds for their business and so really what they probably need is a dose of pessimism or so you said it doesn't have to be what was the exact word the, the forecast doesn't have to be it has to be credible it doesn't have to be what was perfectly the, right perfectly yeah. It doesn't right. Have, yeah but can it be marvelously optimistic like does it have to be could it be because i'm really quite good i'm quite imaginative i could come up with really really compelling and credible forecasts for what might happen in the future um yeah i mean but it, it's got to be it's got to be within the bounds of credibility within the bounds of of possibility so you know right. again it, it, if you're saying no one else with this kind of company has ever done 500 million in three years but we can well why what yes. makes you know what evidence can you point to that says that you are completely different now if the reason that you say that you can do it is because you've got this piece of technology that all the other companies in the market haven't got and you are the first one to be able to deploy it then maybe and that's then down to the investor to decide how much they believe in what the technology is capable of achieving and whether they think that number is achievable with that technology. Yes. But, but if, you know, if you're, if you're going and saying, well, you know, we can do 500 million and, um, and no one else ever has before, and we can't really tell you why we can do it, but no one else can. Yes. Then it's not, then it's not a credible number. So it has to be credulous. It has to be plausible. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, good. Because I like for every day I was running my business, it's like tomorrow this is all going to kick off and be great. And I've ran at 110 miles an hour every day and it just never really was. It was always fine. It was never great. Never anything like great. Um, so, so this is the thing then. So this brings us to this WeWork thing. Because I think the issue was that this guy was just an incredibly um, charming man. And he took, I don't know if he took billions in investment. I don't know what he took. Yeah, they did. Uh, they did he take took a lot. billions in the end. How, how, and, it, and it was basically, it yeah. came down to the force of his personality. And apparently the whole thing was run like a cult. So this must be probably the best example ever of what you don't want to invest in 
but how you want to go about getting investment at the same time. So I can't, I can't, they're talking about the guy not eating pork at the end of Pulp Fiction. And it's like, would you eat a, a pig? And he would be, it would have to be a pretty charming Emma effing pig. <laughs> but this guy clearly was that. Um, so how do, how do, how do investors guard against that then getting carried away with these personalities? I wonder. Um, I mean, it, you know, it is something that, that investors have got to be careful of. And there can be, in the investment world, there can be a lot of jumping on the bandwagon of, oh, well, they've invested, so I should invest. And, um, you know, the, the kind of group belief systems, if you like, that can result in, like you say, a kind of cultish um, approach to managing a company. Um, but this is where strategy and governance comes in so if you're going to invest in a company and you say right i want to see you know say it's been say it's been running for four years great i want to see what your strategy has been over that time how many of your milestones have you actually hit on time oh none of them great that's not you know that doesn't really fill me with confidence that you can fit hit any of them in the future yes so and and the ball you know like we work had a board so despite the fact that um their founder was very charming their board had a legal responsibility to monitor the progress of that company against the goals that that it set and if it wasn't hitting those goals they had the power as a board to remove the head of that company and put someone in who could run it yeah now you know without being able to be a fly on the wall inside inside those board meetings, something went wrong along the way because decisions continued to be made that put the company into a really bad position. And it happened with another, um, I've forgotten the name of another another startup that went went bust a couple of weeks ago. They'd had 150 million in investment, um, and and just. And they were hiring at incredible rates, you know, ridiculous amounts of people coming on board and then went bust like that. But they had a board and the role of the board should have been to say, well, hang on, folks, we're getting a bit close to the wire with the cash here. Well, hang on, folks, the revenue's not coming in, as we said. What? Why aren't? Why isn't that working? So as an investor, you need to be, you know, looking at what, past performance has happened um, and uh, and seeing whether they're capable of executing on what they promise. If it's a very early stage company, like it's six months old, obviously you can't really tell that, but that's why very early stage investors don't put a lot of money in. They'll put, you know, 10 or 20 or maybe 50K in, but they won't risk a lot. They'll, they'll expect you to get a bit from quite a few different investors. Um, so that the risk is spread amongst yes. multiple investors. Okay. So this seems to be like a recurring theme in these conversations. It's like people come up with a car analogy, like you have to pass a driving test before you get to run a business. And the thing about that is it seems to be what happens is when businesses start going wrong, not like when your car starts to go wrong, where you pull over and call someone who knows what they're doing. When a business starts going wrong, you put your pedal to the metal and you go hell for leather. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like all 
governance is what you would call it goes out of the window it's like we have to keep charging or else this is going to fail so that seems to be a recurring theme what i'm interested in to know is like what return kind of return is is an investor expecting what is a reasonable return and are they looking for reasonable returns or are they looking for unreasonable returns um it's Expectations on return have grown, um, particularly over the last five to ten years. Um, so you used to get um, you used to get people looking for a four to five x return on their money and thinking that that was pretty good going. Um, now you're looking at a ten x return as a minimum, uh, and uh, with a lot more, particularly VC funds looking for a 60x or 100x return on what they're putting in so so they're not looking for the company that can grow to a nice size and you know return have a uh, have a 10 or 20 million revenue you're going to know tea delivered now i am yeah i'm very lucky service you've got going there yeah um (laughs) Uh, he knows I talk too much. <laughs> needs <laughs> needs liquid. Um, uh, you know they're looking for um, much higher higher returns. They're looking for as much as they can possibly get because, particularly when you look at venture capital funds, they invest in a wide portfolio of companies um, because they know that the failure rate is high. So they know that you know, 90% of very early stage fail, and then even more drop off as you, you know, as you go. So they need the return to be really high on some of those companies to cover the fact that some of the ones they've invested in will fail and they lose that money. So they are hedging their bets. So if they've, if they've spread their investment across 10 businesses, and one of them gives the, the 10 times return, and the other nine failed, they've not lost. So essentially, yeah, they exactly. just need one and a bit out of 10 to survive. The 100x people need one and a bit out of 100 to survive or to be staying ahead. So yeah. does that mean... I only ever met one person who really benefited. He runs quite a famous business who really benefited from investment. And he said, don't do it. He said, it's like you start your own business to be your own boss and then you've got a boss, <laughs> like, and like you're saying, they install a board, and now the board are like making sure you're yeah. there until five every day and not out surfing or whatever. Um, it, it, it depends what you want that business for, though, doesn't it? So if you want to build a business that you are going to keep for a long time and it's going to be your livelihood for a long time, then no, investment's probably not right for you because you want that autonomy long term. Yes. If you're looking at it as a really exciting, high pressure ride towards some personal wealth creation, yeah, then you probably don't care if you've got a board coming in and in- investors who have a say, because you're only intending to do it for five or eight years. You know, it's not the rest of your life that you're signing up to. Yes. And I suppose the danger is that you fall between those two stalls and you end up with a board now for the next 40 years because you thought it was going to be a wild and exciting ride. Now it's just a job. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's always um, there's always a there's always a chance that can happen, and you can always end up building, uh, you know, a, what you think is a lifestyle business, and then it takes on, um, you know, a, a life of its own, and and gets so big that you do need a board, and you do need formal audits, and all of those kinds of things, and suddenly you're like, oh my god, how did I get here? But um, you know, not without conscious thought is how how you got there. You decided to build it that big. You could have kept it small enough to not have to bring in those kinds of people. Yes, exactly. Do you know Barnaby Winter? No. No. Okay. So I talked to everyone about Barnaby Winter like they should know Barnaby Winter. He's a brilliant brand guy. Like you're the fifty first person I've spoken to in this series. He's the but this is the fifty second episode because he's the only person who's been here twice. He is a brilliant brand guy. Like any household name you can imagine, he was involved in making them a household name, basically. He's Mm. absolutely brilliant. But he says, I say to people, if you're going to run your own business, really the only benefit to running your own business is if at the end of the day, whenever you decide you don't want to be involved anymore, somebody will come along and write you a big fat check for it. Because otherwise, you might as well take the pension and the holidays and the car and the computer and all of the other stuff that comes with having a job and the boss, I suppose, of having a job because it's really not easy running your own business. Now, I said this to Barnaby and he said, no, it never happens. People never sell their businesses. Like essentially, he was saying every business was a lifestyle business. But clearly, you're in a world where that isn't true at all like people are deliberately starting a business and looking to sell it within Mm. five to eight years so how common is that i'm wondering like what percentage of businesses are on the mission that you're the industry that you're involved in which is coming up with a great idea finding an initial investment and more investment more investment more investment until you can sell out and be done like it's a stupid question i know you can can possibly have any idea but is this like ten percent of businesses, or twenty percent of businesses, or? I I would I would expect it's probably in the ten percent or under because you've got to remember that something like sixty to seventy percent, if not higher, of all businesses in the UK only have one person in them. Yeah. So, so, so there's you know the large majority of businesses in the uk are teeny tiny and will never get any bigger and they are you know the one person that run that is a um uh you know a fencer or a builder or a what have you and it's just them yeah so so they're never going to go and raise investment because they haven't set up that kind of company then you've got the sme type businesses who maybe are the um you know the accounting practices or the lawyers or the um uh, maybe the um, hairdressers or something where it's a bit bigger uh, and they've got a few more people in it but again it's kind of there as a job for life type you know creation yeah. um, so they they're never going to go after investment either so there's only you know there's only a small proportion which I, I would expect is probably less than 10 percent that would be doing this very fast growth you know, international expansion, multi-demographic um, uh, journey with their companies. And it yes. takes a particular kind of person to want to do that. Yeah, a crazy person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, good. You've, got to be, you've got to be a little bit nuts to want to be a founder of, of, a, of a high growth company because it is, 
it is a wild ride. Good. Now we've got our headline. That's perfect. You've got to be nuts to want to be a founder. I'm glad we got <laughs> Okay, good. And I suppose the thing is kind of um, projected because the world's largest companies have been built this way. You know, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Amazons, the all of these businesses have, is, have come about through this kind of funding and accelerated growth. And Yeah, I mean, uh, not, uh, not all... Um, I mean, um, if you look at, uh, trying to think who it is, I think it's not SurveyMonkey, it's another one um, in that realm. MailChimp? They've just, yes. So they've just sold for 500 million. They never Have took they? a penny. They never took a penny of investment. I didn't know that. So, but they, they grew that company really fast, but it was a software company, so it was easy. Yeah. Uh, easier to grow because they didn't have to build bricks and mortar and buy assets they could build yeah. it all online um, but they'd never took a penny of investment all the way through that journey and they've to, sold it for 500 million to be fair they did take ten dollars a month from me for a couple of years while i was building my <laughs> list and the first time i tried to send to it they wrote off 95 yeah. percent of my list so you know that yeah. must have helped that was 240 dollars um good Okay, good. Wow, what a cool conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, so the, the question number three is your recommendation for people, like I think you've given us the ideas, but is there a sentence that you would say to people who are looking to get into this style of business or looking to raise investment for their business? Um, I, would, I would say that you need to be able to objectively view your company they as can't. an investor would. They can't. That's impossible. <laughs> or get someone to help you who can. That's someone like you. To give, to give you that dose of realism of, yes. you know, is that a red flag? Is that a problem? What about that big gap there? Yes. You, you need to clear all those things up before you start going out and talking to real investors. Okay, and your business is called, if they want to get hold of you, your business is called Spark, Spark Consultancy. Consulting. Yeah. Okay. Spark Consulting, yeah. All right, good. Fantastic. So there's only two points of business remaining. Um, what do you recommend people read? Um, what do I recommend they read? Or consume. Uh, it doesn't have to be read. Like, books are terribly old-fashioned. What, what kind of content should people be consuming sure um uh no books are books are great i think um i think one that's been instrumental for me and i think helps a lot of founders is atomic habits it's not a new book but it's um uh, it's by james clear and the the one sentence that struck me in the first chapter and was kind of a life-changing thought for me was Winners and losers both have the same goals. The only difference between them is the systems and processes that they use to advance towards them. So, you know, that winner or that loser both wanted to win that race, but one of them had a better way of getting there than the other one did. Yes. So as founders of businesses, thinking about, you know, how, what systems, what processes do you put in place to make your business the most successful it can be is super important. 
it's not yes. you know you everyone wants the big exit and the big sale and everything else but the difference between the ones who get it and the ones who don't are the ones who can can really you know make the everyday journey as as efficient and effective as possible yes is that your third cup of tea now no 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 that's the second one coming back <laughs> good all right so yeah because it seems to me like actually this is a completely different gig from the 90% of businesses who start their their own business like this is yeah. so the from the first step you're on a completely different journey you know and if mm. you don't understand that then um then you're not going to succeed in this way i would say okay cool mm. atomic habits i haven't read that i'm going to read that and um yeah i think it's true everyone wants to win but there's if you believe what people are saying on the internet like we're living in an age of entitlement do you know what i mean it comes across a little bit when you say these people want a hundred times return Maybe that's the best example because you're saying they have to hedge their bets. But maybe if they were doing a little bit more diligence and only investing in 10 businesses but making sure that they were 10 really good businesses, then they wouldn't need to spread their bets to that extent. And they just sound really entitled, like, I'm going to give you a dollar, but you better give me $100 back. You know, it's like that's what's going on. It's, a, it's about how you invest your time and your energy and your money. And that's what we've established today. Okay, good. Just one book that people should read? Um, no, I think, uh, let me do a quick look at my bookcase for what else stands out. Um, uh, I think the other one that's super useful, um, particularly if you're trying to stand out as that founder that, that, you know, that people want to invest in, then Key Person of Influence by Daniel Priestley is also um, a great place to start because that really helps you to think about how you stand up and stand out within your industry. Good. Do you know why I asked this question? It's because I realised I'd stopped reading and I need lots of reading advice. <laughs> I haven't read either of those either. Okay, brilliant. So that brings us then to the very last point of business, which is who are you prepared and who are you able to throw under the bus? So this is about you setting up an introduction in the way that um, Ketan introduced us. Who do you think might enjoy or at least endure one of these conversations? How have you enjoyed or endured this conversation? Maybe it's the first <laughs> No, it's been, it's been good fun. It's been really interesting. Um, oh, I just caught my cable around my foot. Um, so I think a good person for you to talk to would be a lady called Somi Aryan, who runs a company called Fempeak, which is uh, focused around um, helping helping women get financial education and financial growth, uh, and it's also very focused around kind of Web three. Uh, and and understanding metaverse and all of those kinds of things. So it's really about women in tech and finance, Fantastic. Um, and providing a platform for that kind of growth. Excellent. So that's Somi S O M I. Yeah, and then Arian is A R I A N. Excellent. Okay, cool. So I've got that one. Most people recommend two people. <laughs> um, Unless they've got three, of course. No one's going to object yeah. if you can recommend three. 
Yeah, um, let me just have a quick think. Um, bah, 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 bah. So, uh, the other one that might be really interesting because you're talking, you know, we've talked a lot about fast, high growth companies today, um, is uh, a previous client of ours, a founder of a company called Neurocore. Um, and they are in one of those companies where you have to educate people on the difference because they are doing pain relief with no pills. Um, so they're doing pain relief through, um, uh, through electronic pulses through your body instead. Wow. Um, and it's a very, very different approach. So they are having to educate in advance, lay the tracks ahead of the train to get people to understand what their products are capable of. Okay. Um, so, um, so their, their founder, um, Rick Rowan, uh, would be, would be a really interesting person for you to talk to from that kind of marketing perspective of, of how you lay the track in front of the train. Fantastic. Cool. And are you able to set up like a LinkedIn introduction or an email introduction with these people? Yeah, 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 that's you fine. Could. I can do that for both okay. of those. Yeah. Excellent. You are an absolute star. I've thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And it's interesting because I don't I don't know anything about this. Um, so it's interesting because I kind of feel like I'd be good at this, like projecting and all this sort of stuff. I can't be bothered, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting because I've had some, kind of some of the things that I've thought. Like, I don't know how I think these, like you hear these things. I do know, like three years after I was running my business, I'm like, this is amazing. I've got so many customers. Like I should franchise and get investors and, you know, it's all going to be amazing. And then people start saying to you, no, you're not very good. <laughs> <laughs> not you're not very good but you're not in the best style of business or those kinds of things that's interesting mm. you've you've quashed some of my suppositions and supported others but it's been fascinating and i'm sure it'll be useful for anyone if google youtube shines the light on this and they get to hear what you're saying i'm sure it'll be really useful cool Super. Um, so what we'll do now is we'll say goodbye um for anyone who's watching and then what i'll do is i'll stop recording and we can say goodbye like normal human beings so thanks for, for your time today. That's uh, you're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>